0: Hey, this is John Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here at Wood of Life Church in the nation's capital. I want to personally thank you for taking time out to listen to our podcast today. It's our prayer that you're inspired and that your life is changed for the better while listening. So go ahead, enjoy today's message. Uh, in the analytics when they did uh, for the Bible... Gateway, I'm not sure if you've ever used that website, BibleGateway.com, it's a great website, and uh, in their analytics they said that the number one searched out scripture was John 3.16. I think most of us would probably get, oh, okay, that makes sense, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the one, number one most searched out scripture. But in second place, in second place is Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11. Which says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Is there anybody in the house today that glad that God has plans for us, has plans for you, to give us a future and a hope? Now, this prophecy from Jeremiah comes in the light of the nation of Israel going into 70 years of Babylonian captivity—that's 70 years of exile, 70 years of uh, leadership under the ungodly king, King Nebuchadnezzar—and so God says, "I'm with you, but you're going to be in a difficult season." You may have heard me say it before, but it's easy to praise God while it's raining tacos. But can you still praise Him when the hail is made of kale? It's easy to praise God in the good times, but are we able to keep our praise up for God when we're going through the difficult times? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. I know where you're at. I know where you're going. And I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. As Champion said, the title of my message today is simply, Taco Rain, and probably one of the greatest songs that you can Google on YouTube is It's Raining Tacos. I encourage all of you today at some point to Google the song, not now, because see some of you getting your phones out. It's raining tacos. A beautiful love song about tacos. It's raining tacos from out of the sky. Tacos. No need to ask why. Just open your mouth and close your eyes. It's Raining Tacos. It's a beautiful song. They have a, they have a 24-hour version of It's Raining Tacos online. Don't download that one. You got work tomorrow. But that's our, that's our message title today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your spirit here today. We thank you for your word here today. I thank you that you would breathe on me in a fresh new way. God, fill your church here with life. Fill us with excitement for your word. Fill us excitement for your mission. Lord God, let us be faithful stewards to what you've called us to do. Let there be fire in our bones and passion in our heart for your spirit and your word. And so God, I pray today that you'd breathe on me fresh as I preach the word today. Give me a prophetic edge, not just to preach words that I put down on paper, but Lord God, to be able to be in tune to Holy Spirit what you're saying, and give us ears to hear what you're saying to us collectively as a church and individually as people, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, one of the things I've noticed about oh) There he is, Luca Morgan, Rocco Di Coco. Look at that. He's like, preach that word, Grandpa. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, now I'm distracted. <laughs> our, 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 The God that we serve. One thing that I've learned over the years is that God that we serve is a God of dreams. I found that God is a God of vision. God is a God of Prophecy, our God is a God that gives us or paints for us a picture of our future and our hope. Dreams, vision, prophecy is the language of our Creator. Noah was given a vision. He was given a dream. Moses was given a vision. He was given a, a dream. Most of uh, the Old Testament is filled up with prophetic visions. Last book of the New Testament canon is a prophetic vision where God's the language of God. God speaks to us out of eternity into our future. Last week, while we're here, uh, we celebrated the opening of the Pastor Wendell and Kova. Memorial, Wendell and Lois Kova Memorial Library. How many people were here for that? It was a great day. If you weren't here, you missed Charles Chips. But that's up on the third floor there, and we've opened that for our Bible college that's coming. We've opened that for quiet room, for reading, for prayer, for meetings up there. And so we we opened that to celebrate the pastors that were the visionaries behind everything that we have. Once upon a time, 525, uh, 525, 1,225 Backlick Road was just a property, was just land. But there was a man and a woman of God who had a vision for everything that we're sitting in today. Now, they didn't come up with that. God gave them that vision. God gave them that plan. They were dreamers. They were visionaries. They had a prophetic edge. And today, we are sitting in the reality of that. And so our God, that's how he communicates, through visions, dreams. It would be a great day if I never dropped the water but that's not going to happen. There's a, a a day for us for visions, dreams, and prophecy. But the one thing I learned about God is that God will give you a vision. God will give you a dream. God will give you prophecy. But but quite often, he frequently leaves out the details. Like he'll usually give you the big picture, but very rarely does he give you the instructions of what you're going to go through to get there. So Joseph is a young 17-year-old man, and God speaks to him with a prophetic vision. One day, you're going to be so powerful that your parents will bow down and acknowledge your greatness. One day, you're going to be so powerful, have so much authority that your brothers who hate you right now and are jealous are going to bow down and acknowledge your greatness. How many of you know that's a great dream when you were 17? But God didn't mention, oh yeah, by the way, brothers are going to hate you. Uh, They're going to conspire to kill you. Don't worry, they won't kill you. Uh, But they will sell you into slavery. They will, they'll make cash off you and make you a slave, hoping that you'll die in slavery. A little bit of rejection from your brothers. How many of you know, that's a little bit of sibling rejection right there, that your, your brothers or sisters sell you into slavery. And then you're going to work for Potiphar. Now listen, Joseph, you're going to work really, really hard. You're going to be really, really faithful. But Potiphar's wife is going to get the hots for you. She's going to think that you're handsome and she's going to come at you. She's going to falsely accuse you of messing with her. And you're going to get thrown into jail unjustly. Now when you go into jail, He's gonna be there for years rotting, just in jail, just not like a nice prison, a horror. None of that detail was in the plan. Seven good years, seven bad years of famine. None of the 14 years were in the plan. Just a plan that, hey, Joseph, one day, you're gonna be amazing. God leaves out the details. It's like Mary. Mary is 16, she's a virgin. She gets an angelic visitation from heaven, from the angel Gabriel, that's like right up there in the head honchos of heaven. Gabriel whoosh, comes down, speaks to her, says, You're highly favored. God checked out every other woman in Israel. Eh, not her. Eh, not her. Eh, definitely not her. But saw you. He said, I'm going to use you. And you're going to be highly favored. You're going to give birth to the Messiah of his kingdom. There will be no end. The government will be upon his shoulders. He will be the king. Like this is the prophecy she's getting from the angel, that Jesus would be Messiah, that he would rule and reign, that he'd be on the right hand of the throne of God. This is who the angels, but but strategically left out a small detail of the cross. Just an itsy detail that, Mom, Mom, one day you're going to stand and you're going to watch your son be beaten by Roman soldiers. Mom, hey, Mom, just left this little bit out. One day you're going to watch Roman soldiers reach out and grab your son's beard and rip it out by the root. One day, mom, forgot to leave this detail in there. They're going to whip him with a scourge and pretty much almost disembowel him. Mom, I forgot to just mention the cross, naked, hung up there in humiliation in front of him. I forgot to mention that little, you're going to have to walk through that to get to what I'm telling you. Forgot to mention about being in the tomb for a few days. Now, we know he rose from the dead, but she had no idea day one. A little bit of detail that wasn't included in the prophecy. Abraham, yes. Abraham, you're going to look up right now and count the stars. So he's counting the stars. And God's like, that's going to be your inheritance. That's going to be your children. At that point, he's got nothing. That's it. But he sort of left out that, hey, by the way, that's probably not going to happen until you're past your childbearing age, and your wife is way past the childbearing age. And he sort of left out, didn't throw it in there, not sure why he didn't, but sort of left out. Oh, yeah, and by the way, you're going to have to get a rock and circumcise yourself. Don't look shocked, it's in the Bible. Some of you like, I can't believe he just used the word circumcision in church on Sunday. It's in the Bible quite a lot, if you read it. And so that little bit of detail wasn't in there. I'm sure as a man, if God's, and I'm like, oh, the stars, yeah, the stars. God leaves out the detail a lot into the, and so in this prophecy, uh, the prophet Jeremiah is very upfront with Israel and what's happening. Like there's no ambiguity. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. That's verse six, four, sorry. Whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. What you are walking through now is God orchestrated. What you're walking through now may not be pleasant. It it may not have been your plan, but God is letting them know it's my plan. And so we see that, that Jeremiah is confronting them with truth. But there are some prophets in their day that don't want to confront Israel with truth. They want to trade the truth and they want to water it down a little bit, so it's a little bit more palatable. Hananiah was one of those prophets that watered it down. In chapter 28, it says in verse 11, and Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people saying, thus says the Lord, even so, I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within 2 years. So this prophet Hananiah is put a yoke over Jeremiah's neck and he's giving a visual and illustrated message And Hananiah is saying to Israel, hey, listen, I know you're going into Babylonian captivity, but but don't don't worry about it. Uh, It's only going to be a couple of years. Israel's entered into captivity and the prophet Hananiah is declaring it's just going to be short. It's not going to be long-term. And this is nice, but it's not helpful and positions Israel for danger. Because they're going to go into 70 years of captivity, not two years of captivity. If it's just two years, maybe they just think to themselves, well, I don't need to do anything. I'll just will it out. It's only two years. It'll go fairly fast. You know, so, so he's he's watering, he's watering it. If, Hananiah is like, if you're thinking of seasons, he is like the fall of prophecy. I hate fall. I despise fall. Fall cannot make up its mind. When fall comes in, you've got some days absolutely hot. Woohoo! We're in summer, next day snow. We're in winter, next day woohoo! Hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, 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 cold, 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 colder, 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 hot, hot, cold, cold. That's fall. It just can't make up its mind. But the reason fall is helpful because at least you know I'm coming out of summer and I'm heading into winter that I'm not going to be able to have my summer wardrobe operating in winter. Now, if you know me, I'm a summer guy. I like summer clothes. My official uniform, if I could wear it all the time, would be a tank top, board shorts, and flip-flops. I grew up in Queensland, Australia, North Queensland. That's, that's the official uniform of North Queensland that, that's it and so I like, and so for years when I came to America and winter would come, especially in Chicago, I'd rebel against the winter and wear my my board shorts and my tank top and my flip-flops and I'd walk down. But as winter came in, I even had homeless people yelling abuse at me for the love of all things, holy puts the clothes on. So fall is an indicator. it may not be nice, but it is an indicator of what's coming. So Jeremiah is like the prophetic fall of his generation. His words may not be palatable, but they are 100% absolutely necessary. For thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 8, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So the prophets are telling them what they wanna hear, but not what they need to hear. The prophets are saying, everything's going to be cool, not going to last for long. I know this is not good, but it's going to be short, just a couple of years. And God is going, yeah, nah, it's going to be a long time. It's going to be 70 years. I believe that we need that in our life. I believe every one of us need people in our life that will speak truth to our moment. That we need people in our life that love us enough to speak truth into our season that we are surrounded by people that are committed to us enough that they would speak truth to our future. I want to have some friends in my life that will speak the truth to me at the risk of me losing my relationship with them. That I'd get angry at them and I don't want to listen to you and I'd push them, but that I would have the courage to speak truth into my reality. Jeremiah does not sacrifice truth on the altar of popular or prophetic opinion and this is true for Jesus now we always paint Jesus up as just nice Jesus Jesus meek and mild you know Christmas Jesus and swaddling clothes cuddly Jesus but there were quite often times now Jesus was a God of grace and mercy but there were there was times that Jesus never sacrificed the truth on the altar of being nice Jesus is talking about the cross. This is a part of his destiny. Peter steps in. Not going to happen. I'll take him out. Been working out. Been taking the creatine and the protein and all the teens. They come anywhere near you. Punch him in the face. Knee him down. Slice off the ear with a sword. Use them for fishing bait. Now, this is what you want your friend to say. I'm going to go through a hard time. You want your friend, oh, I'm, I'm with you. Jesus turns to his friend because he's not a part of his destiny and says, get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan. Probably the only worst thing that you could call somebody in the kingdom of God worse than Satan is calling a woman Jezebel. That's the only thing that's probably higher than that. And so this is not nice, but it's accurate. He can't be swayed by, oh, you're not going to go to the cross. We'll look after you. you no, know, Jesus had to keep his focus on what God was calling him to do. Jesus never sacrificed the truth on the altar of popularity. There were some things Jesus did that weren't popular. There are some things that Jesus did that if I did it, you would leave the church. You say that again. There's things Jesus did that if I did it and you saw it, you'd be out of here, you would leave the church, you would disconnect me online, you'd be surfing for something else. There was a woman with a demon-possessed daughter. This girl is demon-possessed, mom is bringing the daughter into the room, come on, sweetheart, she's like "Ah, ah." You know, she's listening to ABBA music or something like that, and she's bringing the demon-possessed daughter in, and then she brings the daughter to Jesus while he's eating a meal, And says, Jesus, can you please pray and cast the demon out of my daughter? And Jesus' initial response to her is, no. You brought a guest in to church. They're excited because it's taco rain. They're going to get a free taco gift card at the end of church. But you didn't bring them for the gift card. You bring them because you want the man of God to pray for them because they're going through a hard time. And you walk up to the altar and you stand there with your friend on the altar at the end of service. And I'm up here just about to get off the stage. And you wave me down. Hey, Pastor John, will you come and pray for Mary? And I walk down. I take one look at Mary. I take one look at you. And I go, no. And I just walk off. (laughs) Like you would be like, can't believe this church. It's a bad church. Going somewhere else. Jesus says no. No, and then says to her, it's not fit to give the children's bread to the little dogs, just insults her. This woman gets up and she's like, my my daughter's demon possessed. I don't care what you say. Pray for my daughter, I'll take a crumb. Jesus gets up and goes, bam, that just happened i would never seen such faith. Jesus was testing her faith. Jesus was finding out where she was at, turned to the disciples and said, get your notebooks out, take some notes on her. This is what faith is all about. she became a hero in the Bible because she was able to move through something that wasn't popular. Jesus never sacrificed truth on the altar of popularity. Probably one of my favorite ones of Jesus that he never sacrificed the truth on the altar of public opinion. He didn't really care what people thought. He didn't sacrifice it on public opinion. I think this to me, I don't know if it's just me, but one of my favorite Jesus moments is he goes into the temple and he checks it out. And they had found a way of making money on sacrifices. Pretty much it said to the nation of Israel, hey, real hard for you, get a lamb from your flock, bring it all the way to church. Then you gotta kill it and you know, get it here. Listen, this is what we'll do. We're going to have lambs for sale outside the temple. You can just buy a sacrifice. You can buy a sacrifice, saves you all the hassle, and then you can sacrifice it. So you're still sacrificing, but you don't have the hassle of making a sacrifice. And so, and so they're making money of selling sacrifices to God's people, and God's people are paying because it's convenient. That's the scene. Jesus walks in and goes, all psycho ninja Jesus he starts flipping tables, he makes a whip, he starts, <laughs> he starts chasing, my father's house has supposed to be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. He's like yelling and screaming, flipping tables over, going crazy. How many people have read that passage? You know what I'm talking about? I'm not exaggerating, am I? This is accurate. Look what Jesus did. How many of you know that's not popular? Most Christians just think Jesus is nice. I think in most of our mentality, Jesus would walk in the kingdom the temple and see all that happening, and he'd be like, excuse me, excuse me, don't want to inconvenience anybody. This is not good. Can you please stop? Somebody, you know, that, that's what we think Jesus, but it's not Jesus. He never sacrificed truth that it would ever get in the way of what needed to be done. Popular opinion was never the winner. Paul declared that to his prodigy Timothy. He said, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and and wander off into myths. He says, people will no longer endure sound teaching. He said there's going to come a time where they'll accumulate teachers to suit their own passions and that they would have preachers around them that would satisfy, satisfy their itching ears or their craving for spicy bits of information. Tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what I can take. And that can happen. I know that we've taken that scripture and we've transferred it over and made it all about the people that have watered down the gospel to make it like politically correct and engaging. I know we've watered it, we've done that. But the opposite is true. Just people that want to hear a doctrine or a subject entertain me, give me more information. But information without transformation will only ever lead to fascination. If you've got information and it doesn't transform you, then to feed you, you just got to keep getting more information and feeding that bad boy and feeding that bad boy. Why? Because you're fascinated about the information. Itching ears wanting to hear what they want to hear. But God says, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I'll fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So they're thinking that it's only two years, but God is saying, No, I am not on your clock. You're on your clock. I am not on your clock when 70 years are completed. 70 years. Now for us, that's a lifetime. So God's telling everybody, if you're over 20, you're going to be 90 when this thing is done. If you're 50, probably going to be dead when this thing is done. If you're young, even if you're just born, you're still going to be 70 when this thing is done. We, you've got to get your head into it for the long haul. God says, I want you to get married. Find a spouse, get married, I want you and your spouse to have children. I want your children to grow up. I want your children to find a spouse. I want your children to get married. And I want your children to have children. God is painting a picture here that this is not going to be a short sprint. This is going to be a marathon. And God can do that because 70 years for God is nothing. 70 years is like a bill for 70 cents that's going to be split between Elon Musk, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett. That they have to split. the. How much is that? 70 cents. Can we take it three-way? That's what that's like to them. This is 70 years in the, in the annals of God. It's interesting. Uh, Russell texted me last night. I didn't know this. I think this is a biblical revelation. But there is a Greek word in uh, the New Testament. It's pronounced tacos. T H C H O S. For the non believer, go to Strong's. It's word 5036. Tacos. And, and it means quickness, speed, rapido. It means it will soon take place. In uh, Revelation chapter one, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ with God gave him to show him his servants that things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. And so that word soon take place is tacos. Everyone say tacos. Tacos. Sounds so good right now. That word is a soon take place. But what we realize is that What John prophesied didn't happen in his timing. And a lot of it, we're still waiting for it to happen in our timing, 2,000 years later, which is God's timing is not our timing. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. So what God's saying, build a house, plant a garden, get married, become parents, become grandparents. This is the long run. we have got to get our head into the space of Jesus could come back any moment. And so we need to have our heart prepared. But we also need to live like he hasn't made a decision to come back yet. And that that decision is in the hands of the father. And we're just eagerly awaiting for that to happen. If we don't live with a long-term view, then we're going to end up with a short-term result. When I first got saved in the 80s, pretty much every church that I attended preached on end-time doctrine. There were some incredibly gifted people from Australia. Uh, Barry Smith was a big uh, prophet from New Zealand. Pretty much any time there was war in the Middle East, the end time prophets would come out of the woodwork. And we heard a lot about the rapture. I I remember being in church and thinking to myself, we may not even make it out of church today. Pastor could be halfway through his bed and we're out. My mother and I, my, my mother's passed, but my mother has sort of, my oh, I got her sense of humor. We had this friend, uh, Pat McAuliffe, we used to call her Pat on the head. And she was uh, in her probably 60s or something, and she would come and visit my mom uh, during the day. And so if I saw Pat pull her car up, and Mum was listening to some like gospel music, I'd say to mom, come on, Mum, let's just leave our shoes down here, and let's hide in the closet while Pat gets here. She'll think it's a rapture. And so we'd put shoes on the floor. Mum would go on, she'd turn the kettle on so the kettle would be like steaming when this woman would come in. And my mum and I would hide in the closet together. And you could hear Pat, Phil, 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 just like calling out to him. And then we'd go, Ah, oh, I tricked you. It was big back then. It was, it was huge. But here was the downside of that. And we need to live prepared. But the downside of that was many leaders never prepared for the future. If Jesus was coming back in the '80s, there's a book in 1988 called "88 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in '88." Sold huge in '88, not a lot in '89, but a lot in '88. (laughs) The downside of it is if you if you live like He's coming back at any second and plan like that, that a lot of those people didn't plan retirement, they didn't plan investment, they never purchased houses, they never thought about the future. And we are 40 years on from when that was happening. 40 years, four decades on. And so I believe as Christians that we need to live with our life right before God, the blood of Jesus on our life and live holy lives and live sanctified lives and live on fire lives for God like he could come back at any second. But we need to plan like he's got it in his control. And what is a second for for, for God may be decades for us. He is a God that speaks out of eternity into our chronos. So God is at the finish line while we're still at the start line. So God's saying, I, I'm in this, but you can't coast. I'm in this, but you can't be trapped in your past. I'm in this, but you can't just leave it to me. What God is saying is the end of this is way off, and you need to get your head into the game now. Always remember that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control not circumstance control. So the fruit of the Spirit allows us to control ourselves. We can't always control the circumstances, but we can control ourselves. James said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance, as one translation puts it. And let steadfastness, endurance, longevity, have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Endurance is a part of God's plan. So anybody can praise God when it's raining tacos. But can you have the endurance to continue to praise Him and lift your head high when the hail is made of kale? And in this verse in Jeremiah 29, God is prepping the heart of Israel for the long term. This is not a dash. This is a marathon. And you prepare for a marathon differently than a dash. If you're a sprinter, muscular, energetic, low body fat, If you're a a marathon runner, you are not running muscular. You're not looking for explosive power. If you're a sprinter, you need explosive power. If you're a marathon runner, you need to lean down. Very, very rarely do you see like muscular, you know, marathon runner. They're usually lean, mean running machines. Why? Because they've got to run the long haul. And so God then gives these directions to Israel. He said, you're going to be here 70 years, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to build houses. I want you to build houses. I want you to get yourself established. Build houses and live in them. In the midst of crisis, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of this ungodly leader, Nebuchadnezzar, that's going to be ruling in the midst of exile, what I want you to do is I want you to take authority in your life, And I want you to deliberately build houses. In the midst of the chaos, I want you to create for yourself a place of peace. I want you to create for yourself a place of rest. Don't be stressed. Don't be doubting. Don't be anxious. Don't panic. I've got it all in control. You're going into this. But if you endure, you will come out the other side. You're going to make it through the other side. But what I need you to do is I need you to build houses. I want you to know that God didn't say, I'm going to build houses for you. God says you need to engage in the process and you need to take personal responsibility and you need to build houses. You need to get your foundations down. You need to lay it down and you need to create for yourself a place of rest. Don't float for the next seven decades. Realize you're going to be here for a while. I want you to build houses. I want you to plant gardens. What is God saying? He said, I want you to position yourself to prosper. Plant gardens and eat their produce. So God is saying, listen, I I created seed, time, and harvest. And right now, in this captivity, you've got plenty of time, you have 70 years. So I want you to plant gardens. I want you to prosper in a place where you probably shouldn't prosper. I want you to plant, I want you to put seed into the ground. You're going to have time. You're going to have harvest. And I want you to eat your produce. So in other words, not only do I want you to plant seed and have harvest, I want you to benefit in that day financially from your harvest. So I want you to be... Blessed and to be a blessing. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to be able to be there and multiply. He goes on and he says, and value family is another one. So you need to build houses, plant gardens, and value family. Verse six Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your son and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Family and friends and community is in your DNA created by God. Most of us understand that when God created us, we are spirit beings. We live inside this shell, which is temporal, called the body. And we have a soul, which is our mind, will, and emotions. So when God breathed into clay, become a living being, become a living soul, that's how God created us. We are spirit. We live in a body. We have a soul. But then God looked at that and go, that's incomplete. You're a trinity, but you're incomplete without what? A helpmeet. So God created family. He created community because we are incomplete without community. If we learn anything from 2020 is that the church does not do good when we're apart. That humanity does not do good in isolation. In 2020, when people were locked up on their own in their homes, most people lost their mind. They embraced all sorts of weirdness. Why? Because they weren't in community. They were disconnected. We had to social distance from them. Don't come with them, sex six We're just standing in line. How are you doing down there? Just waiting in a line. That's how it was. You had to isolate in your house. You had to distance everywhere. No one was anywhere. There was no traffic on the road. It was eerie. But we learned in that season that we didn't do good. We're not created for isolation. God said, it's not good for man to be Alone. We're created for community. And so this is what God's saying here. He said, I want you to create family, have wives and have husbands, have sons, have daughters, raise them up, let them get married, and then have children and grandchildren. Social distancing may have been a thing, but it's never a good thing. I I, I don't dislike Zoom. I think Zoom can be very helpful in, in meetings and things like that. It's a part of technology of today. But I don't like the Zoom attitude that says I don't need to be with anybody I can do all my work at home alone I don't need to connect with anybody in the world around me that is not how you're created Bible says two are better than because they get a good reward for their labor and so you've got to Place value on family. You've got to multiply and do not decrease. In other words, you've got to grow personally. Multiply and do not decrease. What new skill can you learn? In this season, how can you multiply? While we're waiting for Jesus to return, how can you multiply? When you're living your best life now, how can can you multiply? How can you increase in your learning? How can you get a promotion at at work? How can you learn a, a new hobby? How can you kill an old habit and develop a new habit? How can you crucify an old mindset and embrace a new mindset? How can you embrace the future rather than just living in the past? You need to multiply and do not decrease. And then he says, I want you to seek the welfare of the city. Look what it says, verse seven. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. So God says, I want you to love your enemies. I want you to have a passion that your enemies would be blessed because of you. I want you as a prisoner in exile, in captivity, I want you to live bigger than the moment. You're a child of God. Put your shoulders back. Head up, chest out, you're a child of God. You're a son and you're a daughter of God and I want you to make a difference. Jesus put it this way, you are salt, you are light. Make a difference in your world. Don't become a product of the world. Let the world around you become a product of your faith. So God says, I want you, I want you to stand boldly. I want you to seek the welfare of the city. I want you to have a heart, and a passion for the people that have put you into isolation, into exile. I want you to be bigger than the moment. I want you. I believe this is the. I believe this is the 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 the, the platform for Christianity. Jesus said, you are salt, make a difference. You are light, go into the darkness, make a difference. Darkness doesn't overcome light, light overcomes darkness. Don't allow the world to overtake you, rise up on the inside, be a man and woman of faith, stand your ground, but let the people around you, the saved and the unsaved, be blessed because of you. That's the authority Jesus Christ has given us and we need to walk in that authority. And verse 7, right at the end, he says, And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So we need to pray for our city. God says, pray to the Lord on the city's behalf, for in its welfare, when the city prospers and does well, you will find your welfare. So after laying out a whole heap of practical things that we need to do, he wraps it up with this. Super spiritual power bomb of prayer. The real power kicks in when we're on our knees. So God's saying to us, listen, that boss at work that's giving you a hard time, pray for that boss. Not just that the boss would calm down and treat you well, but pray for that boss's prosperity. Pray for that boss's health. Pray for that boss's family. People that you despise in the community that you can't, pray for them. Don't make them your enemy. Make them your prayer target. Politicians, pick your side, pray for the other side. Pick your side, pray for the other side. That's a spiritual thing to do. You don't have to agree with anything the other side is doing. You can be in total disagreement, but you can still pray for them. I don't need to agree with you to pray for you. I don't need to agree with you to love you. I don't need to agree with you to accept you. I can be diametrically opposed with everything that you believe and I can still love you. I can be opposed to everything that you think and I can still pray for you because the one power that I have is to get on my knees and pray that God would move in your life. That is the power, my friend, that you have. You have the power of prayer. You have the power of prayer. And then it leads into The second most sought after verse on Bible Gateway, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It doesn't really matter what you think. It doesn't really matter what you think. It's what God plans that matters. It's not what you see that matters, it's what God sees that matters. Somewhere in our spiritual life, we have to sit back and go, hey, I don't like everything that's happening. I don't like the situation that I'm in. But one thing that I know, that no matter where I'm at, God knows. Everyone say, God knows. God knows the plans He has for me. When you turn to the person beside you and say, God knows the plans He has for you. Turn to the person on the other side and say, God's got great plans for you. Nothing takes God by surprise. I've had situations, I'm sure you have, where it took me by surprise. But nothing takes God by surprise. I've had situations happen that I thought, I never saw that coming. But God always saw it coming. So they're going into 70 years of captivity and God goes, don't worry, my hand's on it. You're going to get out the other side. And I know you're going to get out the other side. Why? For I know the plans I have for you. I know the plans. I've declared them to give you a future and to give you hope and to give you faith and to give you courage and to give you confidence and to give you tenacity and to give you endurance and to give you faith and to give you courage to be able to press through no matter what's thrown at you, you're able to work your way through it in Jesus' name in Jesus' name. If you believe that, say amen and give me a great round of applause. Give me a round of applause at home, online. So glad that you're with us today.